Well, good morning, New Breed. Hopefully by now you have your Bibles open to the book of Habakkuk. Uh, and this morning we are actually going to be finishing our, our study through the book of Habakkuk. And we're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 16, and seven, uh, 16 through 19. I'm sorry. Uh, and I've titled this, this sermon, a, a Response of Faith, Part 2. And so follow along with me as I read Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning in verse 16 and reading through the end of the chapter. Habakkuk writes this, he says, I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait. I must quietly wait. For the day of distress, to come against the people invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. And I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights for the choir director on stringed instruments. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we just stand amazed at your word and the fact that you have revealed yourself to us and not only that, but you have given us pictures and, and, and instruction on what faithfulness looks like. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that as we conclude uh, this, this study through the book of Habakkuk, thinking about this, this big idea of, of God's justice in an unjust world, I pray, Lord, that we would be people who are marked by faith. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, again, good morning, New Breed. Uh, it is good to be back with you uh, to open our Bibles together again to the book of Habakkuk. And as I mentioned today, we will actually finish our study through the book of Habakkuk, this study which we have entitled God's Justice in an Unjust World. And my prayer throughout this entire series uh, has been that we would, we, who sits on his throne, and I hope this study has been encouraging to you. And I don't know about you, but for me, Habakkuk is such a comforting book of the Bible. And it's comforting to me because as we've mentioned throughout this series, we live in an unjust world as well. We see injustice toward the poor. We see injustices committed against people because of the color of their skin and their ethnic background. We see injustices all around us. And for me, it is, it is somewhat comforting to know that God has not been silent on these issues. That God has not been silent on these issues. And therefore, we cannot be silent on these issues. Because what the Bible speaks to, we want to speak to. And what God cares about, we want to care about. And, and on, the same, on, the, on the other side of the same coin, what God hates, we want to hate as well. But it is comforting for me to know that God has not been silent on these issues, on issues of injustice. And by and large, the same issues we wrestle with today are similar to, if not the exact same issues that Habakkuk was wrestling through and observing in the land of Judah. 
You know, and, and one of the things I love about Habakkuk is Habakkuk was not shy about calling injustice what it was. Uh, and, and, and he was not shy about pleading with God to intervene. We saw that at the very beginning of the book in chapter 1, verse 3, where, where Habakkuk cries out to God and says, Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. And so this, this longing, Habakkuk had this longing to see God intervene. He, he had this longing to see justice present in the midst of an unjust world. And we, church, we should, we should long for God to bring about His justice into this unjust world. We should long for those same things. And what's, what's interesting, as you know, is that God in His mercy and grace responded to Habakkuk. And He actually laid out His plan for him regarding what He was going to do to deal with the injustice in Judah at the time. And we talked about how, how God said that He was going to raise up the Chaldeans and and that Judah, uh, God's people, this nation that was inflicting injustice on itself, that God was going to let an even more unjust nation come and, and overtake it. And, and this plan, as you know, it was somewhat confusing to Habakkuk. He just did not see, he did not understand how it made sense to overcome injustice with a greater injustice. And let's just pause there for a minute and talk about what an incredible gospel picture that is. What a foreshadowing of what is to come, that God would overcome injustice with a greater injustice. Because if you recall, we said that for us as humans, the greatest injustice that we can commit is idolatry by worshiping anything other than God. But yet an even greater injustice than that is the perfect Son of God giving His life as a ransom for the unworthy. And God overcame injustice with a greater injustice. And so probably unbeknownst to Habakkuk, uh, there is a foreshadowing here of the cross that is just magnificent. But yet still, Habakkuk, he did not understand why God was doing this. He didn't, he didn't have that quite worked out where we can look back and see that. He, he didn't know what God was doing. And he, he communicated that to God. And what God does is God responds to Habakkuk. And, and, and as we've mentioned, he doesn't necessarily answer the why question, but what God does is so amazing and it's so good and it's so faithful is that God doesn't tell Habakkuk why he's doing what he's doing because God knows Habakkuk can't fully understand. But what God, this good, loving, and kind God does is he shows his servant his heart. And God shows his heart toward injustice. And God reveals to Habakkuk that even though you don't understand what I'm doing, even though you can't make sense of all this, know that I hate injustice as well. I hate it. So Habakkuk at that point has two options. He can either trust in God's heart in this matter, or he can refuse. And, and it is his choice. Habakkuk can either trust the heart of God and believe that God is just and that God hates injustice and that God is working all things together to, to a, into a culmination that will bring about his glory and the good of those who love him, or he can refuse to believe that. And what we began looking at last week as we started chapter 3 was Habakkuk's response to God. And what we see in chapter 3 is this, this prayer which reads like a psalm. And in this, we are seeing a beautiful picture of what it looks like to respond in faith. 
Now, if you remember back to last week, I shared with you in part one uh, that there was, a, there was a question that had been posed during one of our question and answer times after we finished chapter two, after God had finished revealing his heart towards injustice. And the question was, how should we live in light of God's coming wrath on unjust nations, especially if like Habakkuk, it is our own? And I told you that that was and still is the right question to ask. Because that is basically the question that Habakkuk was faced with after hearing God's plan and seeing God's heart. Habakkuk was left with this question of how do I live in light of this? How do I respond faithfully? And I contended last week and continue to contend this morning that the right answer to that question is that that we must have a response of faith. How do we live in this world? How do we live knowing that God's judgment is coming on unjust nations? How do we live knowing that we live in the midst of an unjust nation? And my response, again, is that we must have a response of faith. And last week, we began to flesh out a little bit what that looks like, what a response of faith looks like. We talked about how Habakkuk's faith, revealed in chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, showed itself in three specific ways. His, his, his faith showed itself in a trust in the Word of God. It showed itself in a, a trust that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and it showed itself in a trust that God is coming. And, and so I want you to catch this. In some sense, what we saw last week with Habakkuk was a response of faith in terms of inward convictions. A response of faith in terms of what he believes about God. And what I want to share with you today in this sermon, a response of faith part two, is how that, how that inward faith and those beliefs and that trust manifests itself on the outside, how it flows out of Habakkuk. So those were beliefs that he had, that he was clinging to, a trust in the Word of God, uh, a trust that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and a trust that He is coming. But, but when he internalized that, when those were deeply held convictions, it began to flow out of him and what it, what it should look like. And I want to offer to you this morning four ways that faith is displayed in Habakkuk's life as he believes in a just God in the midst of an unjust world. And what I hope you will do this morning as you hear this sermon is that you will examine your own life and see if these same markers are present, right? Because this isn't some abstract concept. That's why we've been trying to really build in this truth that we too are, are living in an unjust world, but believing in a just God. And so Habakkuk's Habakkuk's response models to us what all faithful believers should look like. And so we want to examine ourselves to see if these same displays of faith are present in our own lives as we live in the midst of an unjust world, believing in a supremely just God. And so here's the first thing. I want to jump right in. Uh, I want to show you the first uh, display of faith. So a response of faith like Habakkuk, a true response of faith like Habakkuk, displays humility. When rottenness entered my bones, I trembled where I stood. I really, excuse me, 
I really like the, the ESV's rendering of these verses because it picks up on something interesting. So, so the English Standard Version is very similar, but there are a little, there's some nuanced differences. And so let me read that in case you're following along what I'm reading from the CSB. The, the ESV reads, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. And the picture here with Habakkuk in this statement is one of an all-consuming awe with who God is and his coming to his people. It is this all-encompassing. It fills every aspect of who Habakkuk is. And the reason I read from, from the ESV is because the ESV picks up on a very interesting parallel here where Habakkuk speaks of both his outer body and his inner body to paint this picture of an all-consuming awe of who God is and what he is about to do. One commentator points it out like this. He says, the word translated body might also refer to the internal organs. So he is perhaps contrasting the inner and the outer body represented by the quivering lips, a pattern that would then be repeated by the reference to the bones and the legs. And this commentator goes on and he writes, however Habakkuk's body is considered, it is like the rest of creation and cannot help but be overcome by Yahweh's awesome coming. And, and it's very interesting to note because Habakkuk's response of trembling is no different than the trembling of those who are guilty in chapter 3, verse 7, where Habakkuk says, I saw the tents of Kishon in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. And so Habakkuk, being one who is counted as righteous, who is a prophet faithfully serving God, his response to God's coming is the same as the response of the guilty people that God is coming to judge, that when God shows up, everything trembles in his presence. So even though Habakkuk is considered righteous, he still trembles at the coming of God. And what this trembling shows us is a faithful display of humility. Here's what I'm, here's what I'm getting at. Habakkuk knows that even though he has not committed the injustices he hates, the coming of God is still a humbling thing for him. And here is why this display of humility is so significant when we consider living in an unjust world, believing in a just God. Humility is so significant because church, I want you to hear me, there is a real temptation for you and for me to think more highly of ourselves than we should because we think we have this injustice thing figured out. And there is a real temptation for us to think more highly of ourselves than we should. There is a temptation to look down even on other Christians because they may not think as biblically about issues of injustice. And there are Christians who do not think as biblically about injustice as they should. And if our response is one of thinking we are better than them because we've somehow figured this out, we are not responding in faith because faith displays humility. There is a real temptation to look down on those who commit unjust acts and for us to boast in the fact that we are not like them. And church, Jesus warns of this very thing in a parable that he tells of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. 
And Luke 18 verses 9 through 14 records this. It says he, and that and he is Jesus. It says he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. <clears throat> Jesus says this. He says two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There is, church, a temptation for pride to well up within us even when we are on God's side of an issue. And church, we must fight to cultivate a faith like Habakkuk that displays itself in humility. And the amazing thing, church, is, is that when we do this, we will, start, we will start to long for different things for those who commit unjust acts. We will start to long for different things for them. Because a humble spirit is one that acknowledges that we too deserve death and wrath and judgment because of our sin. And if it were not for the grace of God in our lives, that is what we would receive. I'm reminded uh, of the truth that Pastor Curtis Wood said a few times when he was here, that we are not better than anyone. We are simply better off. And it's because of the grace of God in our lives. It's not anything within us. We are not better than the sinner who does not trust in Jesus. We are not better than them. Now, we are better off than them because of the grace of God extended to us. But we are not better than them. And I would contend that if you go back to the woes, that maybe we should relook at God's hatred of injustice, which shows itself as shaming others. Because often when we think too highly of ourselves, we are actually committing injustice by shaming other people. We are not better than anyone. We are simply better off because of the grace of God in our lives. And when we begin to think like this, Hear me, church, our first longing will be for those who commit injustices to be transformed by the grace of God rather than to receive judgment. And, and I know that may be hard for some people to want. It may be hard for some people to hear. But when we truly recognize how great God's grace has been in our lives, we will long for that grace to extend to those who we deem to be the most vilest of people. Because church, if I'm honest, when it comes to injustices, especially, especially Christians who think correctly about injustice, there is a real temptation for us to be Jonah. Don't be Jonah because God told Jonah, go to Nineveh, confront them on their sins, tell them to repent, and if they repent, then I will turn away from my judgment. And Habakkuk says later on in the book that he didn't want to go because he knew that God would save them. And he wanted them to be judged. And I don't know if you know this, but that story in the book of Jonah doesn't look too highly on Jonah. It doesn't favor him as him having the right perspective and the right attitude about God's grace and God's judgment. Because then after God saves Nineveh, 
He is still angry that God has saved them. And church, we don't want to be Jonah when it comes to those who commit injustices. Our heart and our longing should be for them to to experience the life-changing, the amazing grace of God and be transformed. Our first thought should not be a longing for them to be judged. Because, oh, how I'm so thankful that God showed me grace and mercy. See, Habakkuk did not boast in his righteousness as he considered the coming of the Lord. Rather, he was broken and humble in spirit because a true response of faith displays itself in humility. Here's the second display that we see here in in the final verses of the book of Habakkuk. A true response of faith not only displays humility, but it displays a willingness to wait on the Lord. A willingness to wait on the Lord. Look at the end of verse 16 there where Habakkuk says, He says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. I will quietly wait. And in essence, what Habakkuk is saying is that he has heard the testimony of God. He believes that God is coming. And when he comes, Habakkuk is believing that it will be both judgment and deliverance. So Habakkuk's faith in this truth leads him to wait for God to move. To wait for God to move. And church, seen all throughout Scripture, we, the people of God, have a call to wait on the Lord. Psalm 27, 13 and 14, I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 130, verses 5 and 6, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than, more than watchmen for the morning. Isaiah 40, verse 31, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. This idea of waiting is intimately connected with a genuine faith in God. And like Habakkuk, we ultimately have to be content with waiting for the Lord to act in His time and in His way. Now let me tell you, full transparency, this idea of waiting can be so difficult for many Christians. This idea of waiting can be so difficult for me. Here's the reason why. It goes back to what we talked about briefly last week. Part of our struggle with waiting is that too many of us don't believe that God will actually do what He says He will do. And so we believe that we have to take it into our own hands. That we have to accomplish what God can't or won't. Now we might not ever say it like that. I mean honestly, how many of us would say, those of us who are Christians, well I'm going to do this my way because I believe that God can't do it. I mean, no, we, 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 we testify and we believe that God can do anything. That's what we speak with our mouth. But so often, how we live our lives, we are testifying to the fact that our inability and our unwillingness to wait on the Lord reveals that we don't really believe God will do what He says He's going to do. Too many people 
and at times myself, are not believing that God is the ultimate hope for overcoming injustice in this world. And I hate to break it to you, church, but no presidential candidate will bring about God's justice. And too many of us are putting our hope in that. No change in earthly laws will bring about God's justice, and too many people are putting their hope in that. And when we place our hope and our faith in anything other than God, waiting on the Lord is impossible. And I want to say that again. When we place our hope and our faith in anything other than God, waiting on the Lord will be impossible. Now hear me. Please hear me. I am not saying that voting for a good president is not important. Maybe one day, by God's grace, we'll get one worth voting for. I'm not saying that advocating for unjust laws to change is not a good and a godly thing to do. It absolutely is, because we still have calls in Scripture, like Isaiah 1.17, to learn to do what is good, to pursue justice, to correct the oppressor, to defend the rights of the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. I'm not saying that we don't do these things. We absolutely do. But what I am saying is that we do not place our hope in what we can accomplish. Basically, I'm pushing against this idea that we, as individuals, have to bring about God's justice in this world on our own because we can't do it. We never will be able to do it. Because the truth is, it will not happen. Injustice will reign until this earth is done away with and a new heaven and a new earth are established. Nevertheless, we want to be faithful. We want to fight for justice. Not because we believe that we can bring about that outcome. We fight for justice because God told us to and we love him. We correct the oppressor not because we have the wise words and we can change their hearts and their minds, but we we correct the oppressor because God told us to and we love him. We we plead the, the widow's cause. We plead for the orphan, not because we will be their greatest defense, but because we love God and he told us to. But at the same time, while I push against this idea that we have to do it all, I also want to push against this idea that waiting on the Lord means inactivity or doing nothing. Because that is often a misunderstanding of what waiting on the Lord means. So typically, when, when I think of waiting on the Lord, right, when I think of just waiting in general, my first thought is I was trying to think of a, a couple examples, and for some reason both of them had to do with me sitting in the car, right? But a couple examples of waiting. When I think of waiting, the first thought that came into my mind was, all right, I'm, I'm waiting on my wife as she shops. Right, because often we'll just I'll sit in the car with the kids. It's easier than trying to corral four people, and she's going in there and, and shopping. Plus, she just knows what we need, and she'll always joke that when I go shopping, I buy way more than I need and don't know what I'm doing. So um, that's probably a fair assessment. But nevertheless, that, that's kind of how I think of waiting. Is, is Aaliyah's in the grocery store. She's, she's working. She's knocking it out. She's getting what we need. She's putting it in the cart. She's bagging it up. She's paying for it. She's bringing it to the car. She's unloading it. And in meantime, I'm just sitting in the car. I'm not doing anything. I'm not active in the shopping experience. Now, sure, you could argue I'm watching my kids, which helps, but bear with me for this picture. Uh, Another one I had was when you go and get your oil changed, right? Most of the time you pull in there and you just sit in your car. They have you turn your car off, drop your keys and little things so you don't run over anybody, and, and you just sit there. 
You're, you're not active in changing your oil. You're not, you're not replacing the oil filter. You're not draining the oil. You're not refilling it. You're not checking wiper blades and transmission fluids. You're just sitting there. You're waiting. You're doing nothing. And often I think that's what we think of when we think of waiting on the Lord. But that is not what waiting on the Lord means in Scripture. Because biblical waiting is not inactivity. In fact, there is much activity in the process of waiting on the Lord. I love how the great mind of Andrew Murray explains it when he writes this. He says, our, our private and public prayer are our chief expression of our relation to God. It is in them, so in public and private prayer, it is, it is in them chiefly that our waiting upon God must be exercised. And he says, if our waiting begins by quieting the activities of nature and being still before God, if it bows and seeks to see God in his universal and almighty operation, alone able and always ready to work all good, if it yields itself to him in the assurance that he is working and will work in us, if it maintains the place of humility and stillness and surrenders until God's spirit has quickened the faith that he will perfect his work, it will indeed become the strength and the joy of our soul. Life will become one deep, blessed cry. I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord, and my soul wait thou only upon God. I love that explanation of waiting because even in that beautiful explanation, you see that it's not inactivity. Waiting is seen as prayer and petition. It's seen as pursued stillness and focus. It is listening to the Spirit of God. It is trusting in the power of God. It is fighting for humility and stillness. Waiting is not passive it is active and as we wait well we will be all the more reminded that God is on the move and God is for us another parable I kept getting drawn to parables as examples but I'm not going to read it to you but there's a parable in Luke chapter 12 about a master who's away at a feast and while he's gone his servants are in the house and they're working and they're and they're preparing for him to come and they're they're preparing the food and making sure that that everything is ready to go is and so while they are waiting for him to return they are active and busy being faithful with what they have called what they have been called to do and the incredible thing about that parable is that when the master shows up, you would think that they would have started then actively serving and doing all these things. No, no, no. When the master shows up, he tells them to rest and be still and the master serves them. But that is a faithful picture of, of waiting well. And waiting is not inactivity. It is being faithful to do what God has called you to do while you wait for the master to return. Waiting on the Lord is a faithful display of faith. Waiting on the Lord. Here's the third way we see Habakkuk's faith displayed. The third way we see this response of faith. A response of faith displays a proper hope. A response of faith displays a proper hope. Look again there at verses 17 and 18. He says, though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the, the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, Habakkuk says, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And church, this is such a powerful declaration 
from Habakkuk and what it reveals is a proper hope. You see, there's, there is a lot more in this declaration as you begin to understand it. There's a lot more than meets the eye. And in order to understand the weight of this declaration, you actually have to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 28, beginning in verse 1, we read this. It says, Now, if you faithfully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all of His commands I am giving you today, the Lord your God will put you far above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come and overtake you. Now pay attention to some of these blessings. So all of these blessings will come and overtake you because you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. Your offspring will be blessed. And notice this, and your land's produce and the offspring of your livestock, including the young of your herds and the newborn of your flocks, your basket and kneading bowl will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will cause the enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. So, so check this out. God told his people, specifically the nation of Israel, that's not a promise for everyone, that is for the nation of Israel, that if they were obedient, there would be blessings for them on this earth, collectively, as the people of God. And for the nation of Israel, that blessing would manifest itself as lands producing full harvest and livestock and herds of animals. They would not be lacking in what they needed. And God even tells them that they would be protected from all their enemies, that no one would rise up against them. So when Habakkuk says, though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear, from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls. As he says this, Habakkuk is recognizing that collectively as the people of God, which he is a part of, they have failed as a nation to be obedient. And the blessing of God promised in Deuteronomy 28 is being removed from them. And yet in the midst of this, Habakkuk is still able to declare, yet I will celebrate in the Lord and I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Because check this out, for Habakkuk, his hope is not ultimately in the blessing. His hope is in the one who blesses. We say that again, his hope is not ultimately in the blessing. His hope is in the one who blesses. And Habakkuk knows that no matter how rebellious the nation of Israel becomes, no matter how rebellious Judah is, no matter how hard the collective consequences for the people of God may be, no one can take away the righteousness that is his by faith. No one can take away his salvation because that belongs to God and God alone. And again, Habakkuk's hope in the midst of an unjust world is not found in the blessings of this world. It is not in things going well here and now because he knows the blessings are about to be stripped away from the nation. He knows that they are not initially going to be protected from the rage of the Chaldeans and he will feel that sting as well being a part of the nation. But his hope is not in the blessings of this world. His hope is in the one who blesses. And for Habakkuk, this strengthens his resolve to endure well. And so the question that I would have for you, just a point of reflection, as we 
know and believe that we are living in the midst of an unjust world as well. And yet there is a just God on his throne. The question that I have for you is this. Where is your hope found? And I can't see you. I can't hear you. You don't have to give me the, the, the Bible answer, right? You don't have to give me what you should say. I want you to reflect on that. Honestly, take, take some consideration and think through where is your hope found? And another way you could maybe ask that question that will help your mind focus is where are you ultimately expecting your deliverance to come from? Is it your own strength? Is it your own power? Are you expecting deliverance from the laws of the land or from political leaders? Where are you expecting your deliverance to come from? Where is your hope found? Because again, even as I mentioned earlier, too many of us are placing our hope in the wrong things. If we are to be found faithful, our hope is not in seeing Donald Trump elected president again. Our hope is not in seeing Joe Biden elected president. Our hope is not found in our families. It is not in our jobs. It is not in economic success. Our hope is not in the treasures of this world. Our hope is, is not in having an easy life. Our hope is in the God of our salvation and Him and Him alone. To quote the old hymn writer, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And church, when our hope is built on that, then the statement that I quote so often that is recorded in Romans will be true of us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And we have to believe this as we live in an unjust world because we will feel the sting of this world. We feel it every day. And so a proper hope is essential because if your hope is in not feeling that sting today, your hope is misplaced. And what's amazing to me about Habakkuk is he can make that statement. I will, yet I will celebrate in the Lord and I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. He makes that statement in the midst of chaos, not in its absence. In the midst of the turmoil of this world brought about by injustice, in the, midst of ever, or in the midst of earthly blessings being stripped away, Habakkuk declares, yet I will celebrate in the Lord and I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. All of this because of his faith, which displays a proper hope. Here's the final truth that I want you to see this morning. Habakkuk's response of faith displays humility. It displays a willingness to wait on the Lord. It displays a proper hope. And finally, this response of faith, this proper response of faith, displays a dependence on God's power. It displays a dependence on God's power. Look at the last verse of the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk says, The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. This is such an amazing end to the book of Habakkuk. 
When you consider everything we have seen in the book of Habakkuk, a man who is broken and angered over the injustice he sees, a man who hears God's plan to act and yet he doesn't understand, and yet he is told to live by faith. You see, a man who hears and sees God's heart toward injustice, knowing that God will bring judgment and deliverance, and this will not be easy for anyone, including Habakkuk himself. And Habakkuk ends by declaring, The Lord, my Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer, enables me to walk on mountain heights. And what Habakkuk is banking on is the fact that God, in his power and by his strength, will deliver the faithful. You know, as we have mentioned, Habakkuk knew poetic literature very well. He knew the Psalms very well as evidenced by this prayer in chapter 3 mirroring what a psalm would look like. So he, he, he knew the Psalter. He knew poetic writing. And I, I wonder, and this is speculation, but I wonder if perhaps as he wrote that statement, Psalm 15 was in his mind. Because Psalm 15 says this, Lord, who can dwell in your tent and who can live on your holy mountain? The one who lives blamelessly, practices righteousness and acknowledges the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor, who despises the one rejected by the Lord but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his word whatever the cost, who does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent, the one who does these things will never be shaken. I just wonder if that psalm was resonating in his mind. Because basically that psalm tells us that only those who are righteous, only those who are blameless, only those who are just can dwell with God in his holy dwelling. And Habakkuk knows that there is not one person alive that was believing in a strong God, in his God, who could in his power enable Habakkuk to walk somehow on those mountain heights. He was believing that someone could make him righteous and blameless before God. But it would be by God's power and God's strength. Habakkuk was believing that God could deliver and save. And what Habakkuk was looking forward to is the thing that we now look back on when God himself showed up. And in his power, he made a way for the unrighteous to be made righteous through his strength. He made a way for us to dwell on God's holy mountain with God as righteous individuals. And that is the majesty and the beauty of the cross that when Jesus came and lived this perfect life, he did not deserve death. He did not deserve hell. He was the only one who had the right to walk on that holy mountain. He is the only one who should be there. And yet this one came down to love us, to make us not a people, his people. And he took the full weight of our sin and the full weight of our judgment on himself 
so that we could have his righteousness. And so when God looks at us, we are seen as righteous and he welcomes us to walk on his holy mountain. Not because we are just and not because we are good. Not because we are righteous and blameless. We can't control our tongue. We often falter and fail. We are often dishonest and deceitful. And yet, because of Christ's work on the cross, sinners can be seen as righteous and dwell with God on his holy mountain. And Habakkuk was believing that the Lord, his Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes me, or he makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. And a genuine faith, a genuine faith, will always depend on God's power, and God's power is most clearly seen in the gospel. That Jesus Christ saves. That he makes a way for us who deserve death and hell to be made right with God through Jesus' work on the cross. And we are invited by faith and repentance to come and to wear Christ's righteousness. A genuine faith never forgets that gospel message. A genuine faith trusts in God's power to save. And so churches, we conclude this book and as we live in the midst of an unjust world believing and hoping and finding our strength and power in a just God we must be people who as it says in chapter 2 verse 4 live by faith because the righteous the righteous one will live by his faith And so church, as we live in this world as sojourners and exiles, yes, we fight for justice. We seek to correct oppression. We plead the widow and the orphan's case. But at the end of the day, we must wait in faith, believing that God is going to both judge the wicked and deliver his children. And it is in that truth that our hope is found. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the book of Habakkuk, which paints such a vivid picture for us of what it looks like to live in the midst of an unjust world, believing in you, a just God. And so, Lord, I pray that we, your people, would be, God, that we would be found faithful, that that statement would be the statement of our lives, that we are righteous because of your son living by faith. God, I pray that we will always cherish Jesus. We will cherish the cross. We will cherish when you overcame injustice with a greater injustice and one that was for our good. Help us to be key people who care about the lowly and the marginalized and the oppressed. Help us to be people who care about those who are not lowly and marginalized and oppressed. Longing that all would come to faith through the incredible message of the gospel. It's in the precious name of your son that we pray. Amen.